You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 17th of January 2023 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Emma Nelson and coming up today, from young, vibrant and growing to old and shrinking. How a drop in China's population could alter the country for decades. Plus, does Germany have a new defence minister? We'll find out more about the man tipped to take the job so precarious it's known in Berlin as the ejector seat. We'll be in Davos from where our team will bring us the latest from the World Economic Forum and Fernanda Augusta Pacheco is back in the hot seat. Fernando, hello. What do you have for us today? It's papers. Hello, Emma. Today we look at the coolest neighbourhood of the Argentinian capital and a bookshop boom in Brazil. Thank you so much, Faye. That's all coming up right here on The Briefing with me, Emma Nelson. For the first time in six decades, China's population has fallen. The national birth rate has hit a record low. It comes despite the authorities' efforts to slow the trend, such as scrapping the country's one-child policy. Well, to discuss in more detail, I'm joined by Isabel Hilton, founder of China Dialogue. Hello, Isabel. Good to have you with us. Very good to be here. So let's just go through this this the figures. The population in 2022 was 1.411 billion. That was a drop of 850,000 from the year before. Yes, and it's the trend that worries uh, the, the authorities. The birth rate has, has dropped dramatically. And there are lots of reasons to see how this is going to compound itself, because it's not just the fact that fewer babies are being born. There are fewer young people to have babies because because of the one child policy, China's population is already slewed uh, towards older people. So it has the most rapidly aging population in the world with a big wadge of elderly and retired people being supported by a diminishing number of young people. And that's the uh, that's the economic problem, if you like. You know, you have more unproductive people being supported by fewer productive people. And so the government has been, you know, it did a complete reverse on its population policy from saying you can only have one child. One result of that was that if you can only have one child, particularly in a rural population, you want it to be a boy rather than a girl in traditional societies because girls marry out and you're left with no one to look after you in your old age. So that's the second factor, which, you know, we're looking at a very uh, uneven picture here. We have 30 million surplus men um, and not not enough wives to produce babies. So it's very, very difficult for the government now to say, have more babies. Um, People are living in cities where babies are uh, an expense rather than an asset, as they would be in the countryside. It's very expensive in terms of education, in terms of housing and in terms of career choices. These are dual income families and uh, and there hasn't been any state support. For all these reasons, there really is a bit of a headache here. Could you just specify a little more which areas of the economy are being affected here or will be affected here? Because what we're looking at now is not something that will be immediately felt, is it? It won't be immediately felt. And actually, there are sort of paradoxes within it. You've also got a lot of people who uh, who are unemployed and they're not all low skilled people. You've got a, quite a high unemployment rate amongst university graduates in China. So you have 
you know, you have all sorts of distortions within the economy. Um, but essentially, kind of, it, it, you you have a, a, a population in the countryside of largely of left behind children. So parents went off to work in the factories. Children were left with grandparents on rather unproductive rural uh, uh, um, farms and with very, very poor education. So they're not terribly well equipped to enter an economy which is more, which is moving towards more advanced technologies. They were absolutely the demographic you wanted when you were laboring to build your cities or you, you're working on, on factory um, uh, assembly lines. But the Chinese economy is moving slightly past that. You know, that catch-up phase is over. The age of rapid growth and easy rewards is over. And China's facing the more difficult challenge of um, uh, of, a, of a more advanced economy, a more productive economy, and a question of uh, what is called total factor productivity. So what what it's not just about the numbers of 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 people, it's about how productive those people are. And a, a persistent problem in the Chinese economy is that total factor productivity, which is how economists measure whether your economy is improving, has been declining in China. So you have people who are unemployed, you have people who are employed but not very productively employed, and you have a big burden of people who are not working at all. And that adds up to a significant drag, which will affect different sectors differentially. How does it affect the international community? Because this is a problem which will have long-term effects for people who deal and trade with China. Well, if we look at parallel societies, and Japan is always the closest parallel because Japan's experience was tracked by China really pretty pretty closely. China, uh, Japan got to this point um, maybe 20 years ago. And what we saw was a kind of stagnation really in the Japanese economy. So, you know, there were a number of factors, which again you see in China. So it, Japan was overbuilt on, on infrastructure, overbuilt on property and had an aging population and, and too, you know, too few, too few uh, young people. And it just, you know, the, the, the Japanese economy kind of went to sleep for nearly 20 years. And I, I think that the that the Chinese authorities who have resorted in recent months to rather old fashioned stimuli like let's build more infrastructure or let's take the weight off the property sector. These are, you know, this will produce churn, but it won't necessarily produce productive growth. So for the rest of the world, uh, so some countries which are suppliers to China of raw materials, I think they will, we will get a slowdown in, in demand there. As far as the, the rest of the world that buys from China or that has production chains in China, we've already seen an, an awful lot of disruption because of the pandemic and, and, and the geopolitics. And we are seeing a certain amount of reshoring. But the demographic factor, the capacity to respond to um, surges in demand, uh, to stabilize supply chains, I think that's going to be a further complication. Tell us a little bit about what China can do to try to reverse this trend. You, you mentioned well, a moment ago that people aren't that interested in having more children. And we also have the, the zero COVID policy that the Chinese authorities imposed, which arguably made it physically impossible for many people to have children. <laughs> well, yes, it certainly didn't help. Um, and, and actually, one, one factor which we haven't 
really explored is that, you know, the next time we have a kind of census, we might get a sense of how many people have actually died in this pandemic, which at the moment is is pretty obscure. The difficulty with the Chinese Communist Party's approach to managing the population is that it treated it pretty much as, you know, kind of a, a management issue. And, and demographics are rather more than that. If you see what happened to trends in the Chinese population through coercion, and, and the one-child policy was highly coercive, and you map them against what happened to population trends in neighboring countries, uh, you could pick Japan, you could also pick Taiwan. What you find is when you move people off the countryside into the cities and you give women jobs, they have fewer children. You know, you don't have families of six or eight children because you can't afford it and there's no point and the women have choice. And that was happening anyway in China. So to regard it as a matter of policy and to enforce that policy rather brutally was pretty redundant. You also find that trying to reverse that policy is extremely difficult because of these uh, socioeconomic factors, but also the fact that you now have two generations of children who were brought up without siblings, without cousins, without uncles, without aunts, and you've changed the psychology of the nation towards the family. And you can't just wave a wand and get people, you know, to, to reverse those views. So they are applying the usual policies. They're they're trying to give, you know, they're trying to give economic incentives. They've they've lifted any restrictions. I think that what we're likely to see in the near future, given this is the way the party behaves, is much rather more coercive um, approach. So women will find it harder to get or keep jobs. You know, they will be encouraged to stay home and have children. There will be, you know, I think probably a little more coercion applied. I doubt it'll work, but I suspect that's the way the party's instincts will take it. Thank you very much indeed. Isabel Hilton, founder of China Dialogue. You're listening to The Briefing with me, Emma Nelson. It's 12.10 here in London. A quick summary now of the latest world headlines with Paige Reynolds. Thanks, Emma. Belarus put exiled opposition leader Svetlana Tikhanovskaya on trial in absentia on treason charges today and what the critic of veteran leader Alexander Lukashenko said would be a farce and a show. Tsikhanovskaya fled Belarus after running against Lukashenko in the 2020 presidential election, which was followed by mass protests over alleged electoral fraud. She faces a possible jail term of up to 15 years. Turkish President Tayyip Erdogan has said Sweden and Finland must deport or extradite up to 130 terrorists to Turkey before the Turkish parliament will approve their bids to join NATO. The two Nordic states applied last year to join NATO following Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but their bids must be approved by all 30 NATO members. Turkey and Hungary have yet to endorse the applications. And Russian and Belarusian flags have been banned from the Australian Open tennis tournament after a courtside incident. Spectators were initially permitted to bring the flags into Melbourne Park, but organisers reversed that decision today after fans displayed a Russian flag during a match between Ukraine's Katarina Beindl and Russian Kamila Rachimova. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Emma.
Could Germany have a new defence minister? In the last couple of hours, it's been reported that Boris Pistorius will be named as the successor to Christina Lambrecht. Frau Lambrecht resigned earlier this week after a series of errors, including in a New Year's video in which she expressed gratitude for the positive personal encounters she'd enjoyed during the war in Ukraine. She did this while fireworks exploded around her in Berlin. Well, Suda David Wilp is director of the German Marshall Fund's Berlin office, and I'm delighted to say she joins me now. Very good afternoon to you, Suda. Thanks for having me, Emma. So, no unconfirmed at the moment. We're expecting an announcement from the Chancellor Olaf Scholz a little bit this afternoon. But let's look at who is Boris Pistorius. Uh, Deutsche Welle is reporting him as an assertive go-getter. Yes, Boris Pistorius actually has a very good reputation within the SPD. He is the interior minister in the state of Lower Saxony. He's very well admired for the work he's been doing as interior minister. And um, he's seen as a solid SPD loyalist. And I think it's a really good move on the part of Olaf Scholz because he literally brings a new face into the team uh, for the SPD. And I think Pistorius has also had ambitions to um, show himself on a federal level or prove that he can also work on a federal level. And so he will be given that opportunity. Uh, but the Financial Times earlier on described um, this position as Germany's defence minister as a poison chalice. By all accounts in Berlin, it's described as the ejector seat. This is true. I think the defense ministry has always been somewhat of a hot potato. And just a few, you know, like on Monday when Christina Lambrecht actually um, sent in her resignation, we heard that um, Schultz was having a very hard time um, finding a successor because some of the people in his inner circle here in Berlin were asked, but they turned him down. And really, um, this is more of a story than just a defense minister in the name of Christina Lambrecht um, having poor communication style. It's really about Germany's military unpreparedness and how the chancellor wants to address it during Europe's biggest military crisis since World War II. Um, So I think people know that the defense ministry is not an easy job because there is a complete overall that needs to happen. The good news is that Germany has said it wants to invest more in its defense. So some are suggesting, therefore, from what you've just said, is that Christina Lambrecht's departure is not necessarily, not just necessarily a good thing because of the professional gaffes that she made as an individual. But is this a chance for Olaf Scholz and his government to make a stronger, more assertive start when it comes to the wider perspective of Germany's role in Europe? Let's hope so, because, you know, when um, Chancellor Schultz um, unveiled his cabinet, people here in Berlin had no clue that Russia was going to uh, invade Ukraine. And um, since the war started, Germany has been very incremental and really holding back until it couldn't no longer in its support, rather than thinking big picture along with allies and what it could deliver to Ukraine so that a country could deter um, um, vis-a-vis Russia and um, help in securing peace and stability in Europe. One thing that has been noted this morning is that you said, you know, this is fresh blood coming into the German government, but you know, Interior Minister of Lower Saxony has domestic importance, but he is not known abroad. What difference does that make? I'm not sure that Christina Lambrecht also had that reputation as well. I think the main 
point with the defense ministry um, moving forward is that it can work in close coordination with the chancellery because this is where the foreign policy decisions are being made. I mean, we see how, um, you know, Annalena Baerbock is trying in earnest to um, have more of a hawkish um, position against Russia, but she's being held back by the chancellery. And someone like Boris Pistorius, I think he could have the leverage with the chancellery to really make a difference. How popular a position or a candidate is he going to be domestically? Because obviously Olaf Scholz has to create this balance within the coalition. Um, He always said that he would have gender balance as well. The departure of Frau Lambrecht, her replacement by a man, some have suggested, I said, okay, this is is not achieving gender parity. But politically, is this going to go down well? I think politically it's the right move. I think he would have uh, been criticized um, by many corners here in Berlin and also in Europe if uh, Schultz had decided to, um, you know, use the criteria of being female to achieve gender parity in um, making this decision. As I mentioned before, you know, this is the biggest land war in Europe since World War II. I think Germany needs to be strategic. And um, of course, the chancellery and or the chancellor in Germany are usually cautious by nature, but this is now a time to be bold and a chance for Olaf Scholz and his new defense minister to show um, not just Germany, but also allies that it's um, interested in its own security interests and also the future of um, European security interests. Suda David-Wilp, thank you so much for joining us on the line from Berlin. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. And now to Davos, where our team on the ground is getting stuck in to day two of the World Economic Forum's annual get-together. Joining me to talk about what's on the agenda is Monocle 24's Carlotta Ravello. Hello, Carlotta. Hi, Emma. How's it going where you are? It sounds busy. Yes, it's busy. It's lunchtime here in Davos and everyone is, of course, uh, running to the the health bar and the cafe lounge to try to grab a snack before the meeting resumes at around 2.15pm Davos time. Actually, I've got to ask you a little bit about the etiquette around this, because I would imagine that we are in a room full of people who don't find it easy to queue or perhaps are not accustomed to queue. But are they all sort of like lining up politely for, for, for their little snacks? I think they might have predicted that so well that there's no queuing at all. Uh, the food is just laid there on tables and as soon as you pick one uh, salad bowl up, another one gets immediately put there as a replacement. So far, no queues for anything, not even the toilets. Excellent, efficient and very stylish. Right. Most important thing put to one side, catering. What have we been, peop- what have we been talking about today in, in Davos? So this morning, uh, even though it's day two of Davos, uh, the proper sessions have kicked off this morning. Uh, we heard in the morning from uh, President of the EU Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, uh, quite an impassionate speech about, you know, having to achieve uh, net zero when it comes to carbon emission in, in the next two to three decades and this urgent need to eliminate the global emissions in order to reach those climate goals. Uh, another person that was not in the program and we just knew it was a surprise guest, but uh, we were hearing it through the grapevine and it was suspicious was of course the first lady of Ukraine, Olena Zelenska, who gave a speech as well. Um, of course talking about the security situation at the moment but more interestingly she spoke as well about the issue of food security and that's a trend that we've picked up here at Davos um, over the past few hours uh, tying food security with climate change where uh, the conversation about sustainability can no longer ignore how we get, how and where do we get 
get our food, food from. And when it comes to Ukraine, of course, we know that uh, it's one of the world's top grain exporters that this conflict has uh, undermined so many of particularly African countries that rely on those exports uh, for food, uh, for grains. Um, so the issue of food security is interesting to hear her talk about that on top, of course, of uh, the ongoing war. I think we've all been quite shocked about just how fragile the the food supply chain, the global food supply chain is. As soon as you have one thing go wrong, then everybody uh, doesn't get their grain. Um, But this is always the age-old question that we ask at Davos. People talk, but does actually anything get practically done while people are waiting for their, or they're not, or they're just picking up their buffet and having their lunchtime meetings? Because arguably that's when the stuff happens. Well, the advantage of Davos, and particularly now that we're back at a regular session happening in the winter, is that, you know, if you can imagine what a conference can do when people are all under the same roof, imagine what that does when everyone is under, you know, on the same, in the same town and can't leave because you're literally snowed in and the roads are too icy. So, uh, it allows for a platform for other conversations to happen that perhaps wouldn't spill into the night, wouldn't spill into dinners, wouldn't spill outside the Congress Centre. And, you know, with all these global gatherings, everything needs to be taken with a pinch of salt. And we know that um, Davos is often criticised as a, a gathering of global elites. But, you know, it is here that there is the money to change the world. And if uh, action cannot come from within these halls, um, it is quite a, a sceptical view of the world that we should have ahead of us then. So what are we looking forward to then for the, in the next couple of hours? So uh, one of the main sessions happening in about an hour and a half from now is a one-on-one conversation with the Prime Minister of Finland, uh, Sani Marin. She'll be uh, speaking here in one of the most uh, subscribed events this afternoon. Of course, uh, Finland having an interesting presence uh, with a conversation about NATO, of course, at the top of everyone's mind and very much looking at it in a, it's in a very different position and different standing than what it was this time last year or in May last year when uh, the World Economic Forum last took place. There's also a conversation happening about, uh, you know, geopolitical fracture and bringing people together and nations that might not see eye to eye together. We need to remember that the key theme of the this week is cooperation in a fragmented world. And, you know, it's already good that at least they're acknowledging that, you know, the world is not as united as we all hope it could be. Carlo Torbello in Davos, thank you so much for joining us on the line. Continue with uh, Monocle's Fernanda Augusto Pacheco. Hello. Hello, I'm here. I was just listening to this interesting chat about Davos. It's incredible, isn't it? Um, We'll try and get Carlotta back if she isn't, um, well, sort of had to be diverted via the buffet. Um, (laughs) But let's have a look at the papers, because this is why you're here. We need to tell everybody why you're here. You're here to do the papers, Faye, aren't you? Absolutely. There's some interesting stories coming from Latin America. And Emma decided today, let's leave politics a little bit out. I think we've been discussing a lot about Bolsonaro, the invasion of Congress, Lula's new term. But in Brazil, there's an economic story that everybody is talking about. It's uh, about one of our largest retailers, Americanas. Uh, basically, I grew up with Americanas. They're everywhere. They sell everything from chocolate, uh, you know, to soap and even some CDs if you want, actually. They're in deep trouble. Uh, they revealed a few days ago a $4 billion hole. And the reason for that 
uh, accounting inconsistencies. Ah. So it came as a bit of a surprise for all the investors. And there's big money in it because uh, Lojas Americanas, from what I understand, it's controlled by three Brazilian billionaires. Um, and of course, the shops are open as normal at the moment. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a big retailer. I'm a 44,000 people work um, at this. So we don't know yet what's going to happen. I will miss Americanas if they go away. Uh, what's the name of that British shop that uh, Woolworth? There were, there were many, uh, Woolworth. Woolworth. Sorry, yes. sorry for all the British listeners no, that's, here. That's charming. Say that again. <laughs> Woolworth. Oh, I love that. Thank you. We're going to have to start a little strand about exactly. face says things. Um, it, it, so it was one of those. It is one of those places where you can go and buy anything. Yes. Um, the fact remains is that we have reports now that the, the, uh, a bank has appealed a court injunction to protect the retailer. I mean, if were Americanas to go, what effect would it have on, on Brazilia, Brazil's high street? I think it would be huge. I think there would be a lot of empty spaces across the country. Uh, the thing I would tell Americanas, and this hasn't been really reported, it is looking a little bit tired in the last five years. I've been to the shop in my most recent trip to Brazil. It's, it's a bit messy. I, I think, you know, now is the time if they really want things to work out. You know, perhaps they might have to close a few stores, but the, it, it needs to look pretty. It, it looks like a shop that kind of it's, it's past its best days in a way. But I do want Americanas to remain. Uh, it will be kind of a, a sad loss for how the much, retail, retail scene. Sorry, how, how much of a surprise is it that this is happening? Because when we see retailers, bricks and mortar, the big, you know, the, the big shops, being in crisis it is generally because people aren't going anymore. They've found other ways of doing their shopping. That might be the case, but I think $4 billion with accounting consistencies, that was a little bit of a surprise. Yes. Uh, that, that's, quite a, that's quite a big gap there as well. But it doesn't come as a surprise that they are in difficulties, especially after the pandemic years. And even in Brazil, a lot of people are buying online. So they will have to restructure the company. Uh, let's stay in Brazil to, for an article in O Globo, which is um, linked to retail. We were talking about the, the, the crisis that Americanas is finding itself in. Um, but we have a lovely story about the rise of the bookshop. Now, we, we've seen in the last few weeks, figures are emerging that here in the UK as well and globally, independent booksellers are winning beautifully at the moment, which is such a nice story to tell, having spent the best part of a decade holding its demise. We now have that situation in Brazil. There are more independent bookshops. There are more independent bookstores. So basically, there are a few numbers reported in the press that between April 2021 and November last year, there was 100 new bookstores in Brazil. So that's a very good growth. And Emma is interesting because our big you know, book retailers, Saraiva and Cultura, they suffered quite a lot of losses. But even though they lost, there were a lot of new kind of independent publishers, as you rightly said, and they're doing very well. They have a more personalized kind of service uh, at the shop. And I think Brazilians, and not only Brazilians, as you rightly said, even here in the UK and other countries, they want that. And one of example of that is a new bookstore that opened in Sao Paulo uh, just in December. It's called Livraria Eiffel. They're dedicated to urbanism. Them 
and design. And the most beautiful thing of it, and look how special this is, the bookstore is in the ground floor of an Oscar Niemeyer building. So this is just amazing, right? I mean, yes. that's what you want yes. in the ground floor of a building like this. How long? How long what are the opening hours? <laughs> Can they do it in like overnight settings as Ex- well? Exactly. Well, I, and, and again, you, you're talking about uh, open hours. I mean, there are more events, concerts in bookstores. So people are becoming more creative because there's still a desire for it. So yes, I'm very happy. So American is in trouble, but independent bookstores are doing very well in Brazil. Good. Right. Nice news. Uh, finally, let's head to uh, Argentina, to La Nación, um, and to Buenos Aires. And there is... Everybody loves to find a wonderful part of their city, which they claim as their own and say is, is, you know, the coolest part in dot, 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 fill in the gaps. Buenos Aires has a, a cool neighbourhood that La Nación wants to tell us about. And it's a big feature, actually, with a lot of pictures. You know, clearly they, they wanted to talk about this place in the city. It's called Chacarita. They're saying that that's what a neighborhood should aim to be, uh, Emma, because it's it's a beautiful place in Buenos Aires with a lot of kind of coffee shops, interesting artisans and interesting stores opening up. But they're saying that this, I mean, the soul of the neighborhood didn't change because of this growth. So in a way, it hasn't been kind of this fast growth, which we see in certain neighborhoods, which change completely the character uh, of the place and you know of course the usual uh, abundance of green spaces kind of you can walk around the architecture haven't been damaged by horrible new builds by the way I'm not against new builds just horrible ones you know uh, but it's it, it, it and they compare to Le Marais in Paris which I, I believe you quite enjoy as I well. quite enjoy Le Marais and I can see a trip not necessarily by me, but by the whole of Monocle to that A business area. trip, right? This is, this is just begging a business trip. For now, Monocle's Fernanda Augusto Pacheco. Thank you for joining me in the studio. And that's all we have time for today's episode of The Briefing. Many thanks to all my guests and to the producer, Paige Reynolds. Our researcher was Andre Nikolai Pamintrin and our studio manager was Christy Evans. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening.